That's right, everybody. It's time for another episode of the Black and Blue Pod. What's up, guys? It's Matt here. Um, I just wanted to say thank you if you're tuning into this. Um, and a special thank you to our Shea Cooper, our guest this week, um, for taking the time to interview and sit down with me and just talk about his career in rowing and you know his career after rowing. And it was a fun interview. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Um, Mr. Our Shea Cooper is one of the most mainstream rowers ever uh mainly through his book a most beautiful thing which chronicles his journey as being a member of america's first all-black high school rowing team and there's a documentary on the same underneath the same title uh which goes into detail about how uh arche and his teammates get back together for a reunion race 20 years 20 plus years later um, and I think you guys will really enjoy the interview and I was so grateful and so happy to sit down with them and hopefully you guys enjoy it. So thanks. Okay. What's up everyone. So our guest this week is Mr. Arshe Cooper. He is one of the most accomplished people that I've come across in recent memory. Um, he even has his own movie, which is very exciting. Um, he's done a lot of good work. He was born and raised on the west side of Chicago. He was part of one of the first all-black high school men's crew teams, which is a feat in and of itself is incredible. And we're going to get into everything that he's done, both pre, during, and post-rowing, and hopefully have some fun, and hopefully you guys will enjoy this conversation. So, Arche, thank you for coming on, first and foremost, and thank you for everything that you've done for the sport of rowing. Uh, as a rower, it's always... Uh, difficult to hear people, you know, saying row, row your boat in the hallways, you know, get called names and have to wear spandex all the time. So it's tough to get respect when you're a rower, to say the least. But I think that's what makes the sport so great. So I just wanted to say thank you for everything that you've done. And uh, hopefully the sport will continue to grow as people hear and watch your story. Um, so thank you. So why don't you give a quick little introduction of yourself for the audience who may not be aware and uh, you know, just what got you into the sport of rowing. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Matt. Uh, super excited to just be on the podcast. And, you know, I'm Arshay Cooper. I live in New York now, but uh, from the west side of Chicago. And, you know, I got, you know, I got into sport. It was 97. You know, I remember just walking into the lunchroom one day, right? And, 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 and a little background about our school. It was, you know, it was one of those schools that, was considered one of the most violent schools on the west side of Chicago. It was rough. Like, you have to watch your back. You have to be tough, right? You can't show no weakness, right? And so that was the kind of school that I was at every day. You know, people get chased home. People fight all the time. And, 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 and you know, that was the reality. You know, and people joined gangs for protection, you know, not really just because they want to fight. But, you know, I always say that in our school, people don't make bad choices but hard choices, right? do I steal to eat, you know, do I do this to feed my family or do I join a gang to, to protect myself and have protection? And so that's a little bit background of the school, but walking in the lunchroom one day, I, I saw this white boat and I was like, wow, like, what is that? I never even seen a boat. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this lady was like, would you like to join the crew team? And I'm like, crew, like, what's that? You know, like, (laughs) 
you're taught in Chicago, if someone asks you to join a crew, you run as fast as you can, you know, like crew. What? Different, that, different that, type of crew. Yeah, yeah, that, that is little white ladies walking around starting crews in the <laughs> west side of Chicago. Like, <laughs> what's, what's happening here? Yeah. Yeah, and then behind this boat, they had a TV monitor, and, uh, and they were showing nothing but white people rowing. I was like, no, I'm not doing this, you know, and I kind of kind of walked away, you know what I mean? And yeah. me and my, you know, and, and I was talking to a buddy, and I was like, man, we don't even swim. Like, how <laughs> He was like, I think, you know, he was kind of like, yeah, that's right. But the next day, man, I showed up and the boat was still there. And, uh, but this time they said, you know, you sign up, you get free pizza and everybody's a sucker for pizza, you know? And so <laughs> we were like, we'll do it for the pizza. And I wanted to do it for the girl that he said he was going to hook me up with if I check out practice. And, and then when I went in the gym room, you know, I, um, this guy did this incredible speech on how rowing can make an impact in your life. And, uh, you know, I didn't have, many friends, you know, so I wanted a brotherhood. I didn't know how to swim. I wanted to overcome that fear. And I never been anywhere and I wanted to travel. So that was like a, a yes for me right after hearing that speech. Yeah. So I wanted to get into your high school years a little bit. So you went to Manly Career Academy, which was, like you said, very notorious for being violent, um, gang ridden. And I think one thing that people have to realize is that not every gang member is trying to, you know, be the best guy on the block like they're forced into that because they have to make tough decisions for your their families and for like really their younger siblings and stuff like that like you even had a friend in the book uh most beautiful thing um there's a documentary out underneath the same name you had a friend named alvin and alvin was in joined a gang because you know he wanted to protect his family he wanted to protect his brother and his siblings I mean, what was, how difficult was it finding inspiration, especially in high school when you're trying to push through all this and block out all this outside noise when, you know, you're struggling in school or something else is happening at home? How difficult was that to find inspiration and where did you find that inspiration to keep going? Yeah, it was, it was tough. You know what I mean? And I think too, like, I love what you said. You have the media who will show you just the eyesight, the eyesight of Chicago, but you know, they don't give you the insight. Right. And, um, in the city, it, it was rough. Like, you know, I, I would go to school. I missed a lot of days of school because, you know, my mom wasn't around for a while, but you know, teachers and people would be like, Oh my God, like your grades are not good. Or, um, you know, you haven't did your homework. And I'm like, how can I do my homework? Or how can I, you know, focus on what's 20% of half or who discovered America really when, you know, my mother's not home or when I, someone's told me they're going to jump me after school. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's really hard to focus. And, you know, and I think what's hard about the inspiration is this, is that, you know, we have, me and my boys, we grew up, you know, seeing people get killed, right? We skipped over pools of blood. We ran for our lives. We heard gunshots when we sleep, right? And and we experienced what some soldiers have experienced in war, but before we were 15, right? And they talk about yeah. PTSD or seeing someone, you know, when you look at a suburban school right away when there's a, a, a mass shooting, they were sending these trauma counselors, which they should, but we saw no one and we experienced that every day. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was hard to find inspiration. Not only that, it was hard to see into the future because every day is survival mode. And these are good people. These are good kids in, in these neighborhoods. These kids that are resilient, that are committed. And one of the things I want to say is that when they would 
you know, there's a lot of YMCA's and clubs down there. And, and when, they t when they lose funding, these kids run to the streets and you have the gang members that say, hey, I will be your family. I will look out for you. You need shoes, we'll give you shoes. You need this, we'll take care of you, right? Everyone wants to belong, like Alvin. Everyone wants, everyone's like a good kid. They're just looking for a place to belong. And if there's not a lot of options, access and opportunities, you run to the place that it is. And so the inspiration comes from those, those coaches who've been through it, right? Who are basketball coaches, football coaches, who come to school to try to uh, start a chess program. It's the music from some of the rappers that we have. That's why we look at them as role models. It's basketball players and football players who've been through the same things that we've been through, made it out, right? And became successful and give back. So that's, it, even though it was hard and it was like sometimes far out of reach, but we had to find the inspiration. It, it didn't just sit in our classroom. It didn't just sit on our lap. It wasn't just on the corner. We had to find it. And those were the places that we found the inspiration. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point where you said you're talking about athletes, musicians. And I think regardless of race, gender, religion, I think music and some type of athlete or entertainment actor, whatever, I think those are going to raise you more than your parents will. And I think that nothing can change your mood quite quickly, like a song or watching your favorite show or something like that. Your parents can give you great values and they can give you a good foundation, but I think nothing really carries you through the day to day quite like listening to your favorite album, your favorite artist, whatever it may be. And I think when, if I'm growing up in the type of environment that you're growing up in, I think it's very easy to get attached to music and get attached to athletes because on the Rowing in Color podcast, you were talking about how a history teacher told you you're going to die at 18, if that. Like, how am I supposed to focus on Christopher Columbus if my history teacher is just going to tell me I'm not going to live to like vote or something? Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> like I, I can't, I can't answer the de uh, question about the Declaration of Independence if I get told that like yeah and it's a really tough environment and reading your story um i hope people will understand that there's many different sides to these communities these pockets of destruction where you know there's not much hope and i hope that people do see your story and hopefully grab onto it so yeah. i mean so this white woman's going around recruiting people to cruise. And I'm sure a lot of people were taking that very differently. So how did, was there a single moment where after you joined the team that like you knew like this was the sport for me? Was it like a collection of moments or what was that like? I think it was, it was, two, it was two things. It was um, the moment that we finally were out there, um, you know, maybe the second time and we always push out in open water and, you know, there's a lot of fear still, you know, but that same fear, um, we, we're used to this, uh, uh, experiencing fear. And what happens when you experience fear, survival mode kicks in, right? So if you out and they're shooting, you're running, that fear kicks in, you run like that survival mode, but yeah. you have water now and that fear kicks in, but this time we can't run. And what survival mode tells you in the middle of that water is that, okay, to get back to this dock safely, we have to shut up and pull together. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so when you do that, right, you're quiet 
And you understand we have to pull together. And then here's the coxswain of the coach saying, sit tall, breathe, you belong here. You know, you will be great in this sport. And then you begin to hear things. You, they begin to speak life into you. And then as you begin to pull together, your vision becomes clear. Like, damn, that downtown view looks amazing. Wait a minute. There, there's no gunshots. There's no police sirens, right? Because yeah. fear paralyzes you and, 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 and you just can't see clearly. But now we see clearly and we're moving. And when you're moving, this connection that you feel as you follow the person in front of you is, is awesome. Like the sport is remnick, remnick, right? And so it's meditative, meaning that you know, some people meditate a half hour a day and it changed their lives. To be out there two hours a day <laughs> in a wa- near the water and it's so peaceful, I mean, it really do something for you. So experiencing that really helped. And I think the second thing, the second time we was in Philly, we were all rowing um, in the school goal and just seeing all these people who were running, right, just going for a jog, people who looked like us was like, yeah, clapping and there's stars <laughs> there, two boats of... Of uh, uh, two eight boats of all black kids, and I was like, "Wow, we might be onto something." And so that's when I felt like I, you know, started to feel like, "Man, I love this, and I feel like I belong." Yeah. So, um, so quick anecdote from from me. I mean, I my high school is in the Philadelphia area. We rode on Boathouse Row. So, I started my exposure to rowing was my older brother did it all four years of high school. So I did these like pre like learn to row camps that my high school did in like seventh when you're going into like seventh or eighth grade. Mm-hmm. So one day I'm wearing a Boston college shirt because my brother went there for grad school. So I'm rowing and our coach is like coaching us, trying to teach us the fundamentals. We're going underneath the bridge. And all I hear is I think a biker just yell from up top on the bridge, like, Hey, yo, row in the yellow shirt's a bitch. And I was like, I was like, damn, Philly's tough. Like, I was like, <laughs> I was like, damn, I need to get in the city more. I was like, this is exciting. And I think just small moments like that, or like you were saying, meditative moments where you're feeling everyone in rhythm and you're just on the water and it's so quiet and it's so peaceful that you don't really get that in your day-to-day life. No matter whether you're a high school kid growing up in Chicago or you're a successful business person doing mm-hmm. anything, you're, you're busy, you're caught up in day-to-day. Yeah. So, and I think that's like, especially in high school, it's an escape. Like, I know I had some moments in high school where I was like, man, I'm just glad to be on the water and like get away from school for once or like do something like that. So I can't even imagine what, how relieving it was for you guys to get out on the water and just practice and just get away and just let everything rip for however long practice was, hour and a half, two hours. So what were your like initial reactions of the coaches in general? So like, were you very hesitant at first to buy in? Was it, or was it like immediate? You were like, these guys are the coaches for us. No, I think that like, again, I was always kind of like skeptical, you know, it's like, you know, like I said in the book, like any white sport, like, you know, we like white sports get you killed. Right. And we say white sports, I mean, sports are expensive. Like, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And like Like tennis, yeah, like tennis, I'm not gonna play tennis, or I'm not gonna like jump off a mountain, or you know, be in the <laughs> middle of the ocean. Like, I don't wanna squash. do it. Squash is a huge one. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Water polo, you yeah. know, like we're not doing that, you know? And so I think that, you know, so I'm skeptical going in, but what I liked about these coaches was that, you know, first it was like, you know, as a guy, you don't get, especially in the 90s, you don't get a lot of female coaches. 
right? So there's a female coach, you know, like when it comes to guys, basketball, guys, football, mm-hmm. baseball, there are no female coaches. So we have a female coach. I'm like, oh, okay. It's like, and then, you know, lady, te- women teachers compared to men teachers, women teachers are usually caring, more caring, right? So I'm like, oh, we have a woman coach. That's awesome. And then, you know, and then it ha- there's a black man, Victor, who's another coach who looks like us, right? And so then you have Ken, who's like passionate, right? And, you know, and so I think that that village that he built around us made me feel comfortable. You know what I mean? It wasn't just some white dude is like, yeah, you know, you're going to win. You're going to win medals. You're going <laughs> to dominate. But I think what helped us is that he didn't come in there talking about gold medals or really you're going to be an Olympian. That it was like you will overcome your fear of water. You would travel. You would build a brotherhood. These are all the immediate things that are missing in our life, right? And that's what spoke to us. And so you're like, man, if this person's for real, you know what I mean? I, I'm going to give it a shot. If it's for real, I think life might be great for me. It might just work <laughs> out. You know what I'm saying? It's maybe yeah, a little something. Yeah, that yeah if this shit is real, man, it, you know, it's, something might work out. So, and you know, and they deliver because... When I say like, people say Rowan changed their life, it changes your life, all the experience. But it wasn't really just like, I show up at a boat house and there's a boat and an oar there and I sit in it and I row, that changed my life. It was the environment that these coaches set for us, right? And these lessons they had, right? The simple lesson of leaving the boat house better than you found it every time you walk in there. Like, you know, I'm like, wow, like that metaphor is like, I want to leave the world better than I found it no matter what, my interaction with you, Matt, my interaction when I speak to a classroom or when I write a book, I do all this to leave the world better than I found it. So in Rowan, there was all these heading messages that these coaches will talk about that really spoke into our lives, right? Like, you know, I can't do the work of eight people, right? Yeah. But we need eight people to do the work and we'll get there much faster, right? The same way in our community, the same way in our school, now if we all come together and work collectively, we can accomplish something faster. You know what I mean? So uh, those coaches um, really did a good job with like, I would say youth development training as well. Yeah, I mean, rowing is one of those sports where you can bring a whole cast of characters together and you're on the same, pretty much the same level, like at first, at least. I mean, you even talked about it. There were some teammates of yours that were into like comic book stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. personally, from my experience with my team, we definitely had... We had some guys that were involved in band. We had some guys that were involved in uh, like academic uh, clubs and stuff like that. Like it really does bring together people that you otherwise probably wouldn't interact with normally. And like you guys had that initial fear of like going out in the water and you're like, oh shit, like <laughs> only way we get back here is if we trust in each other. Um, and I definitely had those moments. And so how did you learn to like talk to your teammates uh, and approach them if something was going on or like one of your teammates was having a problem. How did you approach with to them, approach them, I should say, with um, ways to like, I guess, diffuse the situation or try and keep them focused and on practice? Yeah, I think it was number one, I had the, you know, it was the opportunity we had to, to build relationships. Like our teachers do a lot of icebreakers 
you know, getting to know each other and, you know, asking everybody how their day is doing. Now go to the next person and say, what, what was challenging about school today, right? And then go to the next person, like, what, what keeps you up at night, you know what I mean? Or what keeps you going? Like, first, like, doing those icebreakers really helped. But I think that what crew did for us that I didn't see with other sports when it comes to, like, motivating, building those relationships or, or, or leaving room for those conversations is that, when you have the basketball, football, baseball, volleyball team at school, they're trying to get the school safe. The school is chaotic in itself. Mm-hmm. And then right after school, you have to leave your classroom and go right to practice inside the school. And then you try to get home safe. Like it's chaotic, right? And the same way when they, you know, when, when they have a game after school. For us, it was like, okay, the boathouse is far away. We have that hour and a half bus ride. Or every race, every competition is outside of your city. So you have that long van ride to the regatta, right? So when you're sitting there, that there's no chaos, right? And it's silent for a while. But those are the moments that give you opportunities to know each other, to build a relationship. And that's what crew does for young people. And, um, and so from there is when we were like, you know, the coach would be like, all right, someone tell a story. Someone tell a story. And we're like, Holy crap, you went through that? I went through that too. You know what I mean? You know, and then you start talking about it. And then afterwards, when you're like at a regatta sitting there and you walk, you know, to the van with one of the guys, you're like, man, dude, my dad did the same stuff. And then you start building these conversations, right? But a lot of times we don't have time or there's no space to do it when you live in a community that can be chaotic a little bit. And so from there, that's where I learned to just be like, Hey man, you remember we had the conversation? To clear your mind, you have to kind of practice. You know, you know how it feels on the water. You know what I mean? You know it kind of like reduce trauma when you're on the water, that kind of thing. So that's how those conversations started. And that's how we learned to communicate with each other and also hold each other accountable. Um, was through knowing each other first and then always having room to connect. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty well uh articulated i mean i definitely thought of it as like another workout like you have this stress built up throughout the day and then you get on an erg or you get on the water and then that kind of stress in your brain just kind of like flushes and it's it definitely helps you see things a lot clearer so just during your career like as a whole like what was it like adjusting to that such a radical culture change like i'd Rowing is obviously like one, like we already said, like one of the white sports. So it's like much more expensive and it definitely excludes a lot of lower income schools and a lot of lower income communities. So how did you guys really adjust to that? Like, was it an, an us versus everyone approach or just kind of like gauging and kind of just like staying in your own lane? Like, how did you guys adjust to that? Yeah, I think it was, um, at first, it was like us against the world. You know what I mean? You just think that, like, people are going to stare, people are watching, people are looking at us like we're contagious, you know? I think um, after, like, being at a regatta, and I think one of the things that drove us closer, too, was, like, being the only one that looked like us at a regatta, right? And the only one that looked like us, we shared the boathouse with three private schools. So that kept us close together. Like, don't go anywhere without me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we connected that way. And, uh, and so once we build relationships with each other, we did, after working out so hard and seeing others arguing before, um, 
I would say we adapt to the culture in the sense that we knew that the other people uh, that were there, even though they didn't look like us, work hard. Like they, they are really doing the same things that we're doing, right? That we, are, we, we, we share something in common, like, you know? And I think that that really helped us with our perspective. But I think also like sharing a boathouse with other, other, other folks that don't look like us, you know, and kind of just getting to say what's up every once in a while or doing a volunteer project together to help the city really just change our perspective, our mindset and on, um, you know, about the sport. So I think it wasn't us against the world. It started off that way, but I think after a while we adapted, like we were cool. Like, you know what I mean? It, it was fine. And so, yeah, that's what I have to just pretty much say to that, you know, it's, it, it, you know, we, we all go through the same pain, you know, and, and we, we, I wouldn't have gotten that or thought about that if it wasn't for the sport, you know, I, I never interacted or thought I can get along with someone who didn't look like me or be a part of that culture until, uh, you know, you sit next to all those dudes and you all yelling and screaming and throwing up after a 2K, you know what I mean? You're like, you're like, oh, holy fuck, why am yeah, I? Yeah, we all are, we all are one and the same, man. So, you know, we, we then we, we begin to look at things a little differently after that. I mean, yeah, and I think everyone, regardless of what program that you're running for, everyone has had that moment where you're like, how am I going to adjust to like a water sport? Like, I definitely had those fears of like, uh, you know, what, what happens if this boat flips? Like, <laughs> that's, I mean, you said in an interview with the Chicago Humanities Festival that you guys wore goggles on your heads in case the boat flips, you can see underwater. I mean, there, I think there's like a pain there that is so, that transcends everything that like no one else can really relate to it unless you are another rower or a coach or something like that. And then I think that's what makes your story so amazing is that it's not just an average like team that like got together, but like we weren't, we were happy and complacent with just breaking a racial barrier. You guys wanted to win and you guys wanted to succeed and wanted to put everyone on notice. That being said, can you explain to me what it was like crashing your boat twice in your first race? <laughs> no, I cannot explain it to you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no man, that was, it, it was, that was rough, bro. Cause we were ready to go, you know, no one <laughs> yeah. looked like us out there. And we were like, yes. And then Seneca nations, we did not like those dudes. They was just like, they, they always appear to be so perfect. You know what I mean? Always like, the Jesuit schools. Yeah. Always- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the same, anything, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. definitely, definitely. Um, you know at, it, we went out there me and Malcolm just we actually we were both port side and we just pulled that thing in circles you know what I mean and I think we were so upset because the coaches we normally work with didn't choose the lineup you know another coach who worked with us a little bit chose the lineup and um, and we were like damn man and so when we looked up the first time we hit the wall I didn't even know why we hit it I was just so in <laughs> in the race you look up and you see all these white faces just like staring at you you're like damn like, you know Aww. and then Malcolm was like you know Malcolm you read about Malcolm he's always skeptical about something or like you know someone set us up like, they yeah, set the us up, up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they set us up you know and <laughs> uh, you like this sport doesn't belong I mean we don't belong in this sport you know and that was hurtful you know what I mean I think that um after that when I was in the lunch room I mean in, in the locker room that guy, Eugene, that came in there and was like, listen, you know, you got to keep going. 
you know, like people want to remember you, you know, you guys got to keep, you know, you know, like we all have battled a loss or went through a loss before, but it's not, that doesn't determine you. It's what you do after. And so him really just speaking life into me and the importance of having a black man tell me that, right. was just like in the mix of all these white folks that were around me was just really powerful. And I went out, went back out there and was ready to go, you know, and, you know, but we could have quit, right? We could have been like someone set us up, right? And there would have yeah. been no story to tell, you know? So that's what I think is just really important. Just, you know, go after it and keep at it. You know, that's one of the first lessons you learn in the sport. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's always, there's always those moments that are unique to rowing that you're like, you're like, fuck, I like, I either caught a crab or I either messed up a stroke or something, or there's always those funny moments where, years down the line you can laugh about it in the moment it's like the most haunting thing of your life but (laughs) after i think those are what form bonds and form relationships like you and those three other guys in the four i mean you guys are the only guys that crashed the boat twice like you guys are only have that story really yeah so as And, and i tell you i can't tell you how many times i use that story to really help young people move forward you know so i'm glad we we i'm glad we have that story (laughs) i i i I read that in the book and i was like i have to talk about this This because i've had those fears before where i'm like i don't trust the coxswain behind me (laughs) this shit is gonna be either we crash into a wall someone catches a crap or something but i guess we're gonna haul ass and see what happens yeah so i mean that's always a great moment and i i agree that like that story really helps young people move forward because I think nowadays with social media, internet, everything, like as much as it's been repeated, social media and stuff, as great as it is, it can be very challenging to move forward from one moment or one event that happened to you. Like with cyberbullying and everything now, I think that there should be more stories reflected where you can move, build up that confidence to say like, listen, it was funny, you laugh about it, and you move on. Mm-hmm. So during your high school career, you were like every other high schooler. You had a crush named Grace. So my question is, did you ever give that poem to her? Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. Everyone has that question. You know, it's so I got to ask. I got to ask. We've all yeah. been in that position. Yes, yes. Struggling with the ladies, and you yeah. got to come in. Yeah, she was great. Uh, she's a great, great, great friend. But I did give it to her. I didn't, um, I kind of left it out the book because I, I, like, I couldn't remember the poem because I gave it to her. Everything else I kept, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? And I can, re- you know, I was like, oh, I remember like, Shit, but- the one thing I wanted to talk <laughs> about. Like, <laughs> yeah, I gave it away. I did give it to her. Uh, and I think she kept it. And she, you know, she would talk about it throughout, you know, my senior year. But I did give it to her, but I just couldn't remember the, the dog. I just remember <laughs> the beginning of it. Um, but yeah, man, everyone has that crush. And I think that, you know, I was definitely friend zone the whole time. I didn't get the girl. Nothing like being uh, in the friend zone. I <laughs> know, you just can't escape it. And, uh, but, you know, she was like that, that person you can talk to about everything, right? You, everyone is that outlet. And when mm. you don't have that outlet, you know, it, you just have this, this stuff inside of you that kind of directs your path in a, in a different way if you don't have anyone giving you advice before i was i trusted coaches before anything i was able to really uh use her as an outlet and and she was great for that you know 
Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important to have that outlet, especially when like you can't talk to your like guy friends about that shit. Like you, yeah, like they're not gonna be the most uh, sensitive to the <laughs> information at, at the very least. So I I totally get that. I totally agree with that. So you go through high school rowing, um, and eventually you took a gap year to work at uh, AmeriCorps. So can you explain a little bit what that organization does for people who don't know and like the type of work that you were doing with them? Yeah. You know, the, the way I got into that work is that I was asked as a senior to go speak at the juvenile center in Chicago. You know, I was a rower. I was doing really well. I became a leader. I became a captain. I was volunteering in a lot of places as a high school student. And, you know, and it was like, you should go speak to these young kids in juvenile center. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> I don't, I'm not doing that. Yeah, uh, the yeah, you know. And I went and I saw all these young black faces who, young people who basically grew up the way I did. And, you know, it was a bunch of them. And I started talking. And it was very quick, too. That I was like, you know, my mom was a drug addict and never said the word dad a day in my life. And it was rough for me. It was so hard. I joined this team. I learned, I, you know, I, I learned many things through this team. But I started reading books. I, you know, I started taking care of my body, taking care of my mind, and, and, and I became focused. And, 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 and now these are the great things that happened in my life as a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid. And I was like, thank you for listening. <laughs> and as I was walking out, this one kid was like, Arshay, Arshay. And I look back, and it was my friend Donald from the seventh grade. I haven't seen him since middle school. And the security guard kind of grabbed him and pushed him back in his seat. It was like, I told you, no talking. And they treated that dude like an animal, right? And all I kept thinking about was like, when that teacher told me I was going to die before I was 18, not knowing that my mom was a drug addict, not knowing that I didn't have a father, knowing that there was no food at home, right? And I was thinking the same thing about this kid. And I remember going to my coach, it's like, I was already ready to go to culinary school in Cordon Bleu to be this amazing chef. But I was like, I feel like I need to do more before that. I feel like time is running out. I feel like more people need to hear my story. And he was like, all right, you know? And I was like, I'm gonna take a gap year and I'm gonna go to AmeriCorps. AmeriCorps is this program, it's, it's like the Peace Corps, but you give, you dedicate a one year of your life to full-time service. And you say, I'm gonna go back to my community and do service learning, community service, which means that you, you are either doing, like working with high school, uh, you helping students get 40 hours of community service, uh, doing these creative projects and so we did all these fun creative projects like you know working with kids that are disabled the basketball team teaming up with the kids that have disability and they will play games together do bat you know play basketball games together or you know you take young people and they will go to the homeless shelter and do poetry and sew blankets for them like all these amazing uh, things one of the cool things we've done is you go to children's hospital and you know you, you do face painting or you put on a little puppet show for them like all these great things instead of like fouling papers or cleaning up the trash at the school. Like this was meaningful service. And so I, I did that and it was, and it was just awesome. And I learned a lot. And on that team, you have a very diverse team of people who don't look like you and you, you're, you're breaking out stereotypes along the way, you know, and diversity, inclusion and equity uh, becomes a huge awareness for everybody. And, uh, and so you know, and I was great because I was always a team player. I learned how to be a team player while rowing, right? I learned how to connect with people. I learned how to follow, right? I learned how to lead, 
right? I learned how to face my fears. Um, I learned how to leave things better than I, that, that I found it, right? So all those things helped me to be a better employee at AmeriCorps and, and, and a great service guy, you know? And so um, that's what I did. And then right after that, I was able to go to Laquan Blue. So, yeah, I mean, I think the work that you were doing at AmeriCorps is great. And I hope that people are more willing to do that type of work where they're expanding their boundaries and not so much living or judging people based on a box of what they've been told or their own experiences. And I think that's really important. Like your, like you said, your friend Donald, like you knew him in like seventh grade. And I think that's one of the problems that the U.S. is facing is harsh sentences and these people are good people. They just need time to get the right resources and get the right um, foundation so that they can succeed in life and they avoid uh, going down a bad path. So, I mean, transitioning into your career as a chef, I mean, you did amazing work. You were hustling. You even put uh, your Blackbird cards when you worked at the restaurant. Blackbird, <laughs> Starbucks orders. Can you explain that? Like, cause that's like some Jay-Z type hustling. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, the, the, the Rowan program had entrepreneurship. It was, Rowing and entrepreneurship, yeah. right? And so in those entrepreneurship classes in high school, you learn how to hustle, right? You learn about the marketplace, the economy, you learn how to shake a hand, right? You learn how to network and, you know, how to make deals, right, in those classes. And so, uh, but the major thing was for me, it was like critical thinking, really having the ability to see into the future, really planning every step, thinking about where you want to be, right, and how to get there. And for me, I was like, okay, I know I'm going to look on blue, but I know I want to take out loans, right? And so, and I knew I was a chef, and I knew I had this ability to connect with people. And so what I've learned is like, okay, all these communities in Chicago, there's communities that are not doing so good, and there's communities that's doing great. What is the wealthiest neighborhood in Chicago? One of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Chicago is, oh, Little Italy. I was like, okay, I'm going to work at Starbucks. Everyone needs their coffee. Everyone's going to go in for their coffee. They, like, need that. Yeah. And in that neighborhood are aldermans and, and, and basketball players and judges and lawyers and dentists and all that stuff. So that's where, I, where I'm going to go work. And so every morning grinding, man, from like 4 a.m. when you got to open up the Starbucks to 8.30, I was there, right? And people would come in and they would get their coffee. And I was like, hey, how you doing? How are your morning? You know, don't worry about it. This coffee's on me, you know, just yeah. build relationships getting to know them and they loved me. Like, how, you know, how's your daughter today? How's your son? How's business? And, you know, and they would ask me the same question. So I build a relationship with like 50 different people every morning. Right. <laughs> and, um, and so from there, you know, I'm in school from like 10 to like four or whatever. And, uh, you know, and I'm learning, but I'm new, you know, as I'm a young chef or a young cook, not even a chef yet. And then you have Blackbird, which is like, number one critically acclaimed restaurant in Chicago. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And most of my white chefs, you know, everyone wants to yeah. diversify their jobs. So <laughs> I, I went there, uh, you know, Chef Paul Kahn, who's a great chef. I was like, you know, I want to work for free. I do whatever. I cut carrots, no matter what. I, I freaking like cut mushrooms. I just want to learn and I want to work for free. Of course, they're going to let me work for free. And so I go to Starbucks and I make these business cards, cater to families, cater to couples right and and so as people get their coffee i will put my business card in the sleeve of their cup they're like what's this i was like 
Yeah, I cater part. I cater events. You know how to cook? Yeah, I go to La Cordon Blue and I work at Blackbird. You work at Blackbird? Yeah, I work at Blackbird. <laughs> they say I was doing it for free. And I was cutting carrots. Yeah. I, I work at Blackbird. You know what I mean? I, they don't know, need to know that. You, know, you get that away <laughs> there. It says Blackbird on the card. That's all. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. That's all. That's it. You know. And then I started making money. So what I would do is they was like, yeah, having tea's party. I would go like I would get I would like get tell you I'd be like young young dude that was like. $1,200 for that party. And I would go find two of my chef buddies from school and be like, I give you $10 an hour for like <laughs> six hours. I'm like, and this is stuff I learned in entrepreneurship classes, bro. And they would go and work. I would give them like 70 bucks each and I'll leave with like $1,000. <laughs> that was like, I wonder if they listen to this now. And they're yeah, like, they hey, might be like, what? what? Money? <laughs> and I was paying. If you, you read the book, I was able to go to Le Cordon Bleu London and pay for it because of just like these relationships with people I, that wanted just to support me, right? Because, you know, I was nice to them and, and you know, and, and asked them about their lives as they got their coffee. And, um, and so that was like, that was like the grind, man. I was hustling, bro. And so that was, uh, that was a good experience. And the way I got to working with WWE wrestling, because I told that story, right? And I told my story about rowing. Like, you know, I didn't, I wasn't supposed to get that job as a 21 year old working with WWE wrestling. You know what I mean? There was like so many people that were older, so with a lot of experience should have got that job. That was a dream job. But what he said to me was like, because of what you did as a 16, 17, 18 year old, 19 year old kid, is the reason why you got the job. And that's why I always say to people, like, what you do today, even in, when, it's, when COVID hit, right? Even when things are hard, even when you can't control what's happening in your family, the decision you make on how you give, the hope you give, how you volunteer, how you think through things, how you treat the person next to you really matters for your future. Yeah, and I think we just gave the greatest promotion to Starbucks, I think, ever. <laughs> They'd be like, uh, what? He was doing what? <laughs> yeah, Starbucks is like, wait, what the, who is this? Anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, and all of that just catapulted your career, like you said, as a chef for uh, WWE. What were some memorable moments during that run where you were cooking for them, for their wrestlers and everything like that? Like, were there any memorable moments that stuck out or stick with you to this day yeah i think like first i was like in shock my first day like seeing john cena and triple h and all these guys you're like oh. and they tell you right away do not be like a fan like yeah. you gotta work you know yeah. i can imagine that i'm sure they get enough of that during the <laughs> yeah day. i know yeah but it was crazy you know you had people who were like there was a guy who was working security. It was like his first day on the job. And he started like taking pictures of him. <laughs> and he like took his camera, like get out of here. Like, you know what I mean? Like he lost his job. Like I was like, yeah, I'm oh. not going to do that. But I think, you know, at first they don't, they're not like feeling you because they don't know if you're a fan or not. You working there, but they, you know, they don't trust people right away. And I think that, you know, once I got to like, Ask, the, ask them about the, like the food they want, the food they like to eat and got to know them. It became special, you know, like John Cena was great. Like he was like awesome, you know? I can imagine. And, yeah, and I think uh, one of the most memorable things is that when I was there working, The Rock was doing movies already. He wasn't there. And I was like, damn, I want to meet The Rock. And then yeah, he, came everyone... for, he came for one special show. 
And I was already kind of like the man. I knew everybody now. And, you know, you have a menu and that's the, that's what we're going to make. You know, that's what it is. I'm going to eat that, you know? And the rock came and, he, and I was like, Hey, you know, this is what we have on the menu. And he said, um, and I said, we got beef, we got pork, we got this, we got pasta, this, this, this. He was like chicken breast. I was like, we don't have chicken breast. He was like chicken breast. And someone, <laughs> I was like, that's not what we're serving. And someone came into me and said, if the rock wants chicken breast, so you give him chicken breast. <laughs> he was probably he was probably like the goal on this man to say no to the rock. I know this guy said no to the rock, you know, <laughs> and survive. You know what I, I mean? I see the entire like kitchen just dropping everything in dead silence. They're like, yeah. oh no, yeah. this jabroni's about to get a rock bottom. Just on the <laughs> yeah. table. I can imagine. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was it was great. I learned a lot. I, I learned a lot on the show, a lot on the road. But those those guys are, like have good hearts, and they go through a lot. You know what I mean? It's just like fans. You know, these you see these guys come off the bus, and you see fans like raising up their t-shirts, like yeah, women like give me tickets, and you're like, and you see people at the hotel. Uh, it's a crazy, crazy world. Yeah, know? I mean, twenty four seven, they got to be like on the clock, pretty much. I mean, the only real like comparison that I could make to something as or to a person as popular was Jordan just the sheer amount of fans that were clamoring for him and like watching the last dance it was like I can't even imagine dealing with that type of people just grabbing you for autographs tickets whatever and I think those I give tons of respect to those guys those wrestlers because they're on the road 340 out of the 365 days like it seems like they never get a break I mean and major props to them i mean so anyway circling back to you because the interview is about you <laughs> so anyway um so you founded the only new york city public school rowing team at Eastside community school um can you explain a little bit like some of the work that you've done there like just coaching them or administrative stuff like because i think that's something that a lot of people may gloss over in this book but i think it's present work that should be covered so just going a little bit in depth about that, like what you've done around the community and, you know, even with the program in general. Yeah. You know, I was there when I self-published Sugar Water, you know, they did a book reading. And when I went there, I told my story and these young people were like, how do we experience what you experience? You know? And I was like, wow. And you can't say no to that sometimes. And <laughs> um, so I was like, I don't have any water right now, but we'll start off as an indoor rowing program. And we had like like close to 40 kids, right? And Pretty good number. Yeah, it was a great number. And these are kids from the neighborhood. And, you know, I started off just really erging and then doing indoor rowing, you know, going to ergatas, you know, around, around the East Coast. And these kids started erging. But the foundation of the team was really built on some of the things I learned, right? There was a lot of, like, talks about gender, talked about breaking down stereotypes, self-awareness, right? Identity, like, you know, mentorship. I was bringing in speakers. So it was more than rowing. I think what kept them was the family that we built every single day, right? Learning more about each other. And so and that was great. And then we had like kids that went on to be walk-ons and kids who went over to the Road New York program became really great rowers, uh, you know, and, it opened doors for them. I mean, in one year, some of these kids 
like one went to Germany to do a camp for free rowing. They went somewhere to Springfield. They was traveling from like Rochester to Vienna to Niagara Falls. All these things happened in one year, you know, and I want to give them the same experience that I had, you know, and that was the goal. And, uh, and that program still exists and they have, you know, they have someone else coaching the program, but it was good to be a part of that. But once I was able to see what I created there and I spoke at the U.S. Rowing Convention, that's when I started, you know, getting to know a lot of people in the rowing world. They said, hey, can you come and start that same framework here and help us build out our program? And that program was built on rowing, right? Youth development, uh, academic support, social emotional learning, right? And, and, and people started their programs and their clubs. I've seen kids who say, hey, I heard you speak at my school four years ago. Now I'm going to row at Cal. Now I'm at Williams. Now I'm at Stanford. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's, that's the kind of success I want, you know? And I think we live, or we are part of a sport that sometimes really measures success only on gold medals. Mm -hmm. That's not enough because, you know, our sport can still be in danger. We can still lose our sport in the Olympics 10 years from now, right? And gold medals are good. They're fine, right? But you think about our film, in a matter of six months, our film has been in Sports Illustrated, Today Show, New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, USA Today, all of these great outlets, right? NPR, numerous of times. And it's because what the world has been trying to figure out, how do we get different gang members working together? How do we culturally get people to overcome the fear of water? You know, how do we get people from the community like the West Side to get on a bus an hour and a half a day and show up, right? How do we get the world to connect? How do we get people grades from here to here? That's what the world cares about. And that's what we were able to accomplish. And when you can do that, the world wants to know how. But we use it through our sport. So we can measure success, not only by gold medals, but also the things outside of the boat. That's when we become more mainstream. The history of sports teach us that Although each sport has made a significant impact in the world in some way, none has entirely reached its goal without diversity, without access and opportunity, without change, without that underdog story, right? And that's what I'm trying to accomplish here with this sport. Yeah, and I think you made a great point that like success isn't just beyond what happened or success is beyond what happens in the boat. At some point, it's like football, basketball, any other sport you know, the sport's going to end at some point for you and you got to be ready and be prepared for when it does end and make sure that you do have like a plan B in case you, you get injured, um, something emotionally with, within your family, something happens where you're going to have to step away for a little bit and you got to be prepared for that. So overall, this was a great interview. Um, I just want to wrap up with a little segment I like to call off the dome where it's just like five, like quick lightning round questions. Um, so first of all, start, bench, or cut, Jordan, Kobe, and LeBron? Uh, start, Jordan, uh, uh, bench, LeBron. Uh, no, 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 bench, Kobe, uh, cut, LeBron. Okay, I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to say, I want Kobe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so do you have a favorite uh, music album all time? Yeah, B by Common. I'll have to listen to that. Listen to that B by comment. Insane. All right. So kind of go a little, little uh, similar to that. You're hosting. So imagine you're hosting like a all Chicago concert festival. 
your headliners between Common, Kanye, and another artist that you choose? Who are you? Who are you picking as the headliner? Common. Common. Okay. Used like to be that. used to be Kanye, but now Common. <laughs> See, my my generation of Common is him just being on Microsoft commercials now. <laughs> I'm like. <laughs> I'm like, what is all the fuss about Common? He's just doing Microsoft commercials. But I think too, yeah, you listen to like Kanye's good, right? You listen to Kanye, you had his album, you're like, yeah, like, you know, you're pumped, you're ready, to, like, it's exciting. You leave, like, where are we going after the drink? <laughs> you do a Common concert, you're like, yeah, it's awesome. And you leave, you're like, man, how can I change and make an impact here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do this. You definitely, know what I mean? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, so what was your favorite moment of, like, your favorite Chicago sports moment? It could be Related to your rowing career, it could be Bulls, the Bulls. 97, 98 Bulls, the 60, yeah. Jordan, you know, pushing off the butt a little bit of <laughs> Russell. I don't think that's a push. Do you think that's a push off? No, you know, you know what? You know what? No matter what, I think it was a slight push, but even if he didn't do a slight push, Russell would have still been over there. You know what I yeah, mean? I, <laughs> I, I, look at, I look at Russell's momentum and he's taking him too far for Jordan to push that hard and like, yeah. create. I don't like think it was a hard push. He would have been there anyway, but I think. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I will, that will always get argued no matter. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Like it's always. Uh. So uh, fourth, almost, almost done. Do you have a favorite coach of all time? Yeah. Um, my coach or not like who yeah your me? coach your personal coach oh, like yeah yeah and, yeah, yeah. And favorite what made that and what made that coach like what stuck out to you about that coach yeah favorite coach of all time is mark mandel um now he coach at williams he's head coach at williams um he's just like just he was i'll call the quiet storm he was very like he he pushed us to our limits and and was fierce like a lion but then he knew when to be a lamb Right. He knew when we needed his support, when we needed his help. Now, some coaches that was just like a lamb and some was just like a lion. But he was just and he was close to our age and he understood us. He ran with us. He did push ups with us. He did wall sets with us. And so that was the kind of demonstration I needed at that time. And so um, he would always be my best favorite coach of all time. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that. So uh, to wrap up, um, what was weirder, seeing Jordan in 45 or seeing him on the Wizards? Ooh, um, seeing him and the Wizards, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't care what number you wear. If you still have to, you know, you're still playing for us, you're playing for us. So, yeah, that was it. And I have to say for the record, can you imagine in the 90s, you saw the last dance in the 90s where everybody shaved their head bald because they want to be like Mike. The shoes said you would jump like Mike. The commercial with the Gatorade, everyone drunk Gatorade, right? I mean, everyone carried a basketball to school. Everyone wear number 23. And then you, you like, that's the dream. And someone comes to your school in the middle of that time and say, come join rowing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I can see that being like, no, why would I ever do that? (laughs) I would ever do that. You know, you see this basketball, everybody – yeah, I don't have to pay $4,000 to go hoop down the street. I yeah, can I know. Go hoop down the street whenever I want to. I mean, I'm I'm still very much a Jordan fan even though he was past he was past his playing career when I was born and growing up and I'm a Sixers fan so we were we're already miserable enough so we got to look for other teams to root for. 
So, I mean, the last dance is just incredible. Did you have any uh, thoughts about that? Did you catch it at all? Yeah, yeah, of course, man. I was obsessed. I think that, you know, Mike was Mike. He was, he was perfect for the time. I think that what everyone should understand from Jordan is that in rowing, no matter where, what sport we're part of, everyone knows who's the greatest player on their team. Everyone knows who wanted the most. You know who that person is who wanted more than everyone else. But Jordan understood that that's not it. How do I get everybody else to want it just the way I want it? And yeah. that's how we win. You know what I mean? And some people are okay with just being the greatest or just wanting it more than everyone else. And Jordan was like, fuck that. You all got to want it the same or you get punched in the eye. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> or Steve Kerr. Or Steve Kerr. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for this interview. All right, guys, so that was my interview with Arshea Cooper. I am so grateful that he found the time out of his busy schedule to sit down and interview with me. It was great to talk to him. I thought it was a fun conversation. And it was great to talk about life, rowing, I mean, everything in between. Uh, so it was a fun interview, and I'm glad that I got to be able to put this out for you guys. So keep an eye on the social media platforms for our next guest and when those episodes will come out. Um, I'll do a better job of getting those to you guys. Uh, and hopefully, you know, you feel better about the rest of your weekend and you feel a little more positive going into the week. So thank you guys for listening, and I hope you have a great week ahead of you. Thanks. Thanks.